Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm just completely excited and thrilled to have Adim, the artist, on the podcast today. They are, um, I mean, artist is right in their name, but um, when I first came across Adim, I think it was on TikTok, which then was that song that you wrote kind of... um, sending up a certain aspect of country music, uh, you know, and, and uh, you, we connected on, on TikTok. And then I went back and got some of your old records and you sent me White Trash Revelry, the new one, and I just about lost my mind. Um, and I'm so glad I got to be a full-on fanboy like one week before the rest of the world caught up to me. I was I was I was texting you like you know weeks before it 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 blew up. Um and and you know you love that kind of thing. I'm sure you do too as a as a music listener. I I felt like holy fuck, Adeem made this leap. This is staggering. And it's been so fun watching the world notice. Uh and to me, I think for Judas, which is the second song on White Trash Revelry, is the song of the year. I have a bunch of questions about that, but but where I wanted to start is right at this moment that you worked your whole life towards. And we'll go backwards, but I'm so interested in how you're processing the fact that people really and truly get it. Like you just told me you're in Nashville to meet with a producer who you had tried to get coffee with to maybe raise the question in a bashful way of if they'd be interested in producing a record and now that person reached out to you because they heard this album and loved it. And so how are you processing after working your whole life that um, you're seen now uh, and you're, 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 you're recognized uh, for doing this, this work that you're doing. (laughs) I'm just coming into it a little bit, to be honest with you. I think uh, I told, I told my, I told my wife, I said, I think, I think I might have died and I've written up a little dream for myself. And she said, don't you think if you were living in a dream you made for yourself, you'd have less diarrhea. And that was the only grounding thing for me (laughs) for weeks. Um, But yeah, I think, um, I don't know. I don't know that it's settled in, you know, it's, it's a very strange, it's a very strange and hilarious thing, you know, I posted that I, Vincent D'Onofrio said that Heritage of Arrogance was his favorite song. And I shared that on Facebook and said, uh, my life is a hilarious dream I live inside of. The, uh, the sugar water guy from Men in Black loves my song. Yes. Uh, Vince, well, no, you know, getting uh, Vincent, I'll say like, um, it's a big deal when that Vincent responds because that guy is completely not full of shit. And, uh, his instinct for what's real is so great. I, at the beginning of pandemic, he really, we, he, in a certain way, he, he saved me for a minute. You know, I, in pandemic, and I know pandemic was big for you, Adim, week to week, right, things could happen where you felt, where all of us, I think, felt like we were hanging on and it was okay or it was really bad. And early on, Vincent asked me to write him a monologue he wrote me and he was like, will you write me a monologue that I could just do, um, perform for the benefit of a charity, just like a three minute monologue. And we didn't really know, we only knew each other online and we'd been very friendly, but we'd met a few times, but we weren't. And I, 
immediately said yes and I wrote this monologue for him than he did and people and it was writing it for him when we were all suddenly shut down and in this place he gave me this incredible gift I mean I gave you know and he would say I gave him this thing where I gave him this monologue but it was an amazing thing to connect so I relate so hard to what you're saying because Vincent did that for for me in a, in, in a way and um but you know even saying it's hilarious has a kind of distancing effect because and I'm not really asking you if you if you have arrived at it yet. I guess what I want to know is, are you able to take any joy out of it? Are you able to have a moment where you can exhale a little, not fully, of course, and say, "I haven't been delusional this whole time. This is uh, the, this is landing in some way for people." Yeah, I liked I liked on that last episode that you did where you talked about how uh, being an artist is basically being delusional for such a long time, and then finally somebody says, "Wait, you weren't delusional," um, and and that's exactly it. I mean, it, it you know I I'm in my 30s now, and I think for such a long time. You know, it's it's especially as you get close to that Saturn's return point, there's like a lot of like, I should have probably joined a labor union and got a skill that paid better or something, you know. I I, I don't know. I and and there's also the you know, so much like I tried to sell out, man. Nobody would buy my efforts at selling out. You know, I I've I've tried a bunch of different ways to make a go at this and to make a good living to take care of my family. I've tried for years to make art that I thought was meaningful. I've, I've released, you know, I, when this album came out, a lot of people were like, this is such a huge step forward from cast iron pan sexual. And it's like, most of these songs were written years before cast iron pan sexual was written. You know, that was, it was what it was supposed to be that, that album. And so it's really, um, yeah, it's really affirming. It's really, um, yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, nothing has really changed about the quality of my skill, the quality of my craft. Um, but it really is as if somebody flipped a switch and I went from being like uh, everybody's friend who plays music to like a hometown hero. <laughs> You know, yeah. and, that, and that's that's not a. I'm not citing anybody. I mean, that's just the way this industry kind of kind of works. That's how the mechanisms play. But that that switch from because there's no, um, you know, if you're in school to be an attorney, they say like, oh, you're in law school. Um, but if you're playing four or five gigs a night, or playing, you know, fifteen twenty open mics or whatever your your sort of uh, expression of, of building the craft is then you're just kind of wasting your time. That's that's kind of the narrative in the culture. Like, oh yeah, they're digging off doing this. You know what I mean? And so the, the, the space between I'm thinking about doing this and I'm a professional uh, is just kind of an empty no man's land that feels very isolating. It feels like nobody yes. really takes it seriously. Even, I mean, I remember when I was doing cruise gigs i was making like 40k or something a year to play music on cruise ships and people would say have you thought about doing this people would say have you thought about doing this for a career 
I'm like, well, I'm I'm right here, man. <laughs> you know, you know, well, because that, yeah. there, there's either either you're a celebrity superstar or, you know, you're a regular. Oh, they're a hobbyist. Yeah, that's like that line in Piano Man, you know, man, what are you doing here? And it's like, oh, I'm trying to play my music until I can go play my music in uh, more people recognize it. But I so I know Cast Iron Pansexual pretty well because that was the first one of your albums that I got. And I thought it was terrific. But if you held these songs, there is something as a listener, I will say, like Isbel made a lot of great records and had a lot of great songs. But the collection of songs that was Southeastern, that was sort of the thing that announced Jason as, okay, this is the best songwriter of his generation. And it, it, and yeah, he would, he and I talked and he, and he definitely was like, you know, there were a bunch of good songs in the earlier days, Brian, if you, and it's like, well, yeah, you wrote Decoration Day when you were 22, you know, uh, but, but, but this, but this group of songs, and I would say like, or I would ask you, if you wrote Judas for Judas and Carolina and Heritage all those years ago, then you waited until you were ready to really settle into a way of performing and recording them that would feel different. Because the record does feel, if you can't see it, there. I'm saying it's not just random. This is a different record. I agree. I agree with you. Yeah, I think, I mean, the thing was, I had some of these songs sitting around um, and I knew, I knew, I, I had like, the album had three different titles um and all, all fairly similar and uh i knew that what i was building was not something i could produce myself you know what i mean i could hear it in my mind yes. and i knew it needed to be more collaborative and expansive and so it i think you know i you know, <laughs> i'll tell you what cast iron pansexual was supposed to go out to my patreon supporters and nobody else um Weeks before release um, on CD, some cast, some Patreon folks heard it early and they were like, this is good. You should put it out. Um, and and I, they, so they were right. Yeah, they were right. Yeah. But that album, I mean, I, I was procrastinating so much because of a depressive episode that I, I did all the artwork myself for the first release and I sent it to a local company. And everything was printed. The CDs were fully assembled. And that guy was texting me saying, where are the audio files? Can you send me the audio? files?" <laughs> and that's the only way. So finally it just built up so much. So in one week I just burned through it. I just did it. I did it at my house by right. myself, you know? And so there's a, there's a sort of like flash in the pan urgency to cast iron that feels very, I don't know. Uh, un unfinished, not not in a like, uh, not in a, the album's not finished way, but like in an unfinished furniture. Like it's it's an aesthetic, um, and I think oh, totally. that white trash feels so fully realized. Um, also worth noting, for Judas was the last song written for the record, and it was written a month before we recorded. <laughs> So it was well, like right, which fresh which speaks wine. to the eye, yes, which is why when you, that's what I, it's important to note that that's why when so perhaps when someone's like wow what a leap forward because the thing about for Judas texturally 
it's remarkable. It is a remarkable song. It's the song of the year and and um, of last year and this year so far. Uh, you know, you released the record so late into December, and and still, I remember the first time I spun it, just going, "Holy fuck!" I, I because it's the first time I've ever heard a love song that's a queer love song, but that it is sung in a in a, in a manner performed, produced in a manner where there isn't any rebellion in it. It's not about rebellion of the state. You were going through a personal thing by the interviews of acknowledging who you were and all this stuff to be able to do that. But you're presenting it in a way, this very specificity of it reaches um, a straight male 56-year-old like me in a way that it feels like falling in love for the first time with Amy. And that trick, um, because right, um, anyone who was ever an artist feels like an outsider at times in their lives or understands it. And also the amazing audacity of going for the rhyme scheme that you go for and the way that it doesn't, and as a as a formal sort of poetic lyric, lyrical document it's amazing and then there's this melody and this this um as you say this very as opposed to some of the other work this very kind of complete almost like a josh ritter kind of a musical bed and the you know which is to me very sophisticated paul simon influence kind of at the josh's right um and you hear all that stuff come together in a in a way where traditionally artists singing about this kind of thing would would make records that had to have lots of like right angles sticking out and lots of ways musically to poke you and the confidence that you have to just tell your story with this incredible melody in these words. I don't know that that you could have done that. Bef- I wonder whether that could have happened before the moment you fucking just did it, you know? That song really, um, it really did fall out. Um, and that, that's one conceptually, that's, that's, that's my wife's idea. Um, Han, Hannah came up with a lot of the, the like bones of that song. Um, because I, my, my label that I, I, I was releasing stuff under before white trash was called St. Judas. Um, because I'm really enamored with the idea of Judas as a, as a character. And I had this idea to do a song called For Judas, uh, but I just couldn't figure out what it was yet, you know? And Hannah was like, it's a love song, you know? Right. And we, we go up to uh, Cade's Cove in the Smoky Mountains, and uh, we, 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 it was about a 30 or 40-minute drive for us in East Tennessee. And so we go up and look for bears and go on hikes in the woods, and we do this, you know, every other weekend or so. And that's one of the places that we spend a lot of time talking about our art. And so we're just kind of on this drive and she's talking about this idea. And I had just started writing for Judas. So I had like a verse and half of the chorus. And then when we got back to the house, I was like, I wonder if this is the song. And I sat down and it was done, you know? Um, but I'd been listening to James McMurtry, you know, that, uh, yes. What is the, the, the record that he did last year? I, I can't recall the name of it right now. Um, but that album, I, I listened to it probably 50 times. And uh, so awesome. He's just one of those writers. He, he's got such a, 
I don't know. He, his songs are so simple and cerebral. Um, and the, the, the dialogue is never, is never stilted. You know, I, I, I'm really, I don't know. It's a lot I want to say about this, but, um, yeah, say that it, record. Say it. Take your time. Take your time and say it. I really like, and this is part of my my the appeal of country music to me, is is trying to make really conversational lyrics. I don't the 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 songs that put me off the most, and this is this is like a personal preference, I know, um, but when songs or lyrics uh, phrasing hiccups in a way that it wouldn't in the conversation or when there are pauses that feel unnatural i think there's a way to pause and then surprise introduce a completed thought that felt like it was completed but when things are split up in a way that just doesn't it feels clunky you know or or uh, what is it uh the most famous example i can think of is is uh nursing a, a tonic and gin yeah it's a gin and tonic it's not a tonic and gin you know um, and so that, that kind of thing is really like, I, I find it hard not to give up on songs like that. Uh, and James is, is somebody who, man, when he writes, he just, he just writes such honest literary work. You know, he, he could have been a novelist like his old man, if he wanted to be, he, he's got the chops. Um, and his, his ability to make that literary writing into music and melody is i mean i don't want to say unmatched because there are other people that that, that are very adept at this but he he in my opinion is, is is one of the champions yeah i have these these really close friends of mine who live in australia songwriters uh sinead burgess and blake o'connor they came to new york and uh they went out to see him play last year and they've just been they have just been nonstop because I love story. You know, I'm a Towns Van Zant, Guy Clark fanatic, and they and I love McMurtry. I've all but but the new the last album, I have not had the two out. Like I really don't want to just listen to it kind of half assed, and I haven't done it yet where I've really sat down with it. Um, but now I'm gonna because they've been all over me about this, and um, because even the songs I write are very inspired by in that idea, and so like it's really interesting. I'm gonna go listen to that album t tonight. Actually, you, you're right that it's not a background album. It I loses all its spark if you if you just put it on. It's, it's not, one you you've got to sit with it. But but you're it seems to me you've taken that notion of of that conversational but literary work you know, the whole Minneapolis Arts District thing and the way you talk, doing exactly what you're talking about in that song. But your your whole album is super musical and really inviting. Like in a way, I've always felt that McMurtry and certain artists like McMurtry put up certain walls. Um, it's almost like there's a barrier. They want there to be a little bit of a barrier of entry. And this album feels like you're inviting the world in, that people may decide the fact that you're gender non-binary, that you rejected a religious upbringing. They may find those things that are kind of extra artistic a barrier, but you don't put barriers up or walls up as, an, as a musical artist, I, I, I don't think. And I think that's where it's different. Um, like this record seems to me it has no bounds. Like melodically, it's so... Um, inviting and is that conscious choice on your part to really care about melody in that in that way yeah melody means a lot to me 
Um, I mean, accessibility means a lot to me too. You know, I, I, I like, I like records that are 45 minutes tops because that's like, as somebody who's always had to work a couple of jobs and take care of the family and do this and that, it's like, that's, if I'm going to have a chance to sit down and absorb a piece of art, like I can't put a 33 song record on, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like I need a, I need a tight 45, you know, that's like, that's approachable to me. But yeah, I think, um, I mean, I draw inspiration, melodic inspiration from a lot of places, but it's a really important part of my, my day-to-day life. When, I mean, I was driving to Nashville this morning, writing little melodies and working on some songs while I'm driving. Uh, awesome. Because I, I just find it so much easier to process stuff with a good bubbly melody behind it, you know? No, I, I look, I, well, it was funny when you were saying he's almost unprecedented and I'm, I'm interested in this because it ties into what you do and where your inspiration is from. But, you know, Elvis Costello and Amy Mann also do that and they do it with a huge amount of melody. Yeah, yeah. And um, do those artists, I, I wondered about that. Does is Elvis someone, are you too young for Elvis um, to have meant anything to you? I never got into Elvis Costello. Um, I, 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 I still want to. I just, there hasn't been a good entry point that I discovered that, that resonated with me. Amy Mann, I love. The, but Amy loves Elvis. The, the album to try for you is King of America. That's the one to start with. If you've never heard that album, T-Bone Burnett produced it. It's, I love T-Bone. Yeah, Long Car Ride. Just put King of America. It's different than any other album he ever made. He thought he was the King of America where they pour Coca-Cola like it's vintage wine is the first line of the album. And uh, you'll dig it, I think. Okay, so a little more about these songs, and then I want to go backwards into your childhood. Because I had written this down. It was interesting that you mentioned when you wrote For Judas. But I wrote down to ask you, like, where in the process did you write For Judas? And also, where did, when did you write Carolina? And when did you write Heritage? And, like, I'm wondering if you knew with these songs as a unit, because they are the first three songs on the record, and they set the template for everything you talk about, all three of those songs in different ways, what you talk about on the rest of the album. Did you have a sense with those three songs? Okay, well, this is pointing the way to something that is kind of beyond what I've done before or is the clearest thing to a mission statement that I've had or was it just a rambling kind of connect- collection of of songs and more coincidental than that? Um, the first one that was written was Carolina. That was written in 2017. Um, I think... The answer is yes for that song. I got this gig. So one thing you might not know is that my government name is Kyle. I know. Yeah. And I know the albums you released under that name and everything. Yeah. Um, but I I, uh, I got to open for Kyle Petty. Wow. He's a songwriter. And he was playing at this coffee shop in Johnson City, Tennessee called The Willow Tree. And it was during Bristol race weekend and he was coming and announcing and he was doing a, a folk gig. And so I called the coffee shop, the owner, her name's Terry. And I was like, listen, I was named after Kyle Petty. I don't go by that name anymore, but I, you know, I'll sell tickets. You don't have to pay me. I'll promote the show. Please let me open the show. And she was like, yeah, whatever. Who cares? 
<laughs> nice. <laughs> you know, yeah. You, know, like you could have just asked. I would have done it. Uh, so I, I got to open. I went. I met him. Super nice guy. Really good dude. Uh, passed the vibe check. <laughs> you know. Yes. Um, hilarious. Uh, actually, he opened his set by saying, a lot of people don't know that Richard named me a Dean. And I said, that doesn't fit. Which I thought was a really quality joke. That's awesome. Um, also, all sad songs from this guy. Really, really, really a, a, a sideways turn because I would have thought he's a, he's a very upbeat persona. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all. I don't really know his music. He's like, well, he's the NASCAR announcer. No, I know, like that, big that, big. Like, I know that part. I didn't. Um, but I would have thought his music would be a little more upbeat just because he's such a bubbly kind of like, ah, everything's nice. But no, he's like, you know, his, his son's death and like all this stuff weighs really heavy. Jason Isbell's like his favorite songwriter and that, that shows, you know. Um, and so I, I had planned this set of like kind of upbeat, raucous country songs. I'd written a couple tunes that I, that I foolishly hoped that John Prine would sing someday and uh, just some, some kind of silly songs. And I wanted to introduce myself at that show and prove my credentials because up till this point, I'd largely been a folk artist. And I was right. like, how do I prove that I'm not just doing a bit, but that this is my history. You know what I mean? I'm, 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 I'm this is authenticity, you know? And yes. so I thought, all right, well, I need to tell my story that I've been pretending isn't my story for a long time. Cause for a New York folk artist, having folks who met in a, you know, off Sam Wilson road at a Texaco and had a one night stand and then just did the Presbyterian thing and stuck it out. That's not cool for a folk singer origin story. Um, but it is a great country song. And so yes. I, uh, I kind of sat down and wrote Carolina just as the opening to that concert that afternoon or, or the day before. Yeah. Yeah. The day before just to like have something to, to kind of, I had the, the lyrics balanced on my guitar and uh, I don't think there've been any lyrical changes. There was one stanza at the end that I, that I cut out cause it was kind of long. Um, but yeah, that, that, so, so when it came time to finish the album, it was like, well, that's the one, I mean, that's, it was written for this. Um, as far uh, heritage of arrogance, I'd been writing for a couple of years. I think I started in 2020, but it didn't get finished until uh, it's probably six months or so before the record was done. Um, it's just, you know, it's hard. It's, it's a hard song. I didn't, I, I really wanted, I really wanted it to be, a song that comes across with open hands and you know people have uh people have accused me of kind of pontificating and 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 condescending in that song and i just i, w I wanted to do everything i could to avoid that complaint because i knew it was going to happen because if you tell somebody like hey all white people are racist a lot of white people just don't want to hear that <laughs> you know what i mean well yeah of course man but I do think the album is extending open arms because you're saying, I want to welcome you into my experience, some of which I've come to realize was hellish. Uh, I've loved people. I've loved people who made it hard to love them. I've echoed words that I've come to see are jingoistic. I've 
spoken words of hatred, whether I meant them or not, because I was instructed to. And all of us, I'm no different than the rest of us. And all of us need to look at all that stuff in order to try and move beyond it. I mean, to me, that's what's going on throughout the whole album. And by using these hyper-specific details, you're enabling us to want to check out our own hyper-specific details, right? That's why it's universal. Yeah. No, I, I, I feel that a lot. And I, and I, obviously I'm biased. I made the damn thing, but yeah, I, I, that was what I aspired to with the record was very much to have open arms. You know, I, I get into this. This is a, this is a, this is a bit of an off topic, um, but I'm going to, I'm going to tie it in. I think, Um, you know, I consider myself a feminist. It's an important thing to me. Uh, But as somebody who was socialized male for 30 some odd years, um, I was taught to inhabit misogyny in so many ways. And so my feminism for better or worse hinges on my capacity and predilection for dismantling and deconstructing the misogyny that I was socialized to inhabit. And if my feminism does not begin and end from that place of dismantling my own misogyny, then I'm only a feminist in as much as it's going to get me laid more often. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the only purpose it serves. Uh, I want to, I want to be the right thing or the good thing that everybody else is doing. And so that's what we're seeing with, with racism as far as I see it. And, and, and I've said this before, and it's kind of a controversial thing to say, I think for a lot of people, but that's part of why I feel like it's important to destigmify racism as a construct because it becomes a pejorative. And the reality is like, that's just a part of our society. It's, it's, it's an institutional part of our society. And so for me, I think it's easy for, and I, and I've experienced this. I mean, I experienced this as a Christian trying to proselytize a broken world in need of healing. I experienced this as an atheist trying to explain to my friends why they were being delusional I experienced this as, you know, in in a hundred different ways in my life where every time I come to a new understanding of the world, I think, oh man, I got it figured out and I need to tell everybody (laughs) what, you know, how to to be good like me, you know? Well, it's like, I have a couple things occurred to me as you were talking. Um, One of which is that all revolutionaries for a good cause are going to be thought of at times as traitors by those who they loved or who loved them originally, right? And there's meaning the the place you come from, the way the world was. So that's just part of being revolutionary. But the other thing is we can't ignore the word revelry in the title of your album. And we have to notice that this is a sing-along. You're inviting us to a sing-along and to revel in... Uh, the joy we get out of singing these songs and out of recognizing the place we all, the, the broken places from which we all come and the, the, the idealistic notion that by recognizing it, we can transcend it. And I, anyone who doesn't get that is, is somebody who, who's um, uh, afraid that, the, that, that, that this kind of growth will unseat them from their position. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I would just to say, do you 
when you go home or if you go through those towns and you see people from your high school, do you have a moment of sheepishness or are your shoulders back and you're ready to meet them? And, and how do they react to you? Yeah. I mean, I haven't, I, I mean, it's tough for me to, you know, I, the, the, the reality of what I'm saying is that when I left the church, I left, I pissed all my friends off and you know what I mean? I think that's, I think that's why this is so special to me and why it's so important to me because this record was the first time I said, Oh, I'm not, I, you know, I, what I want to say is the compulsion for a man who becomes a feminist is to act as if men who are not feminists are inferior to them because they've gotten woke to this thing. Yes. yes. And I think that that's always been a habit of mine. Like when you find out that racism exists after a lifetime of believing it didn't, every impulse is like, I want to pretend like I've always been on this side. <laughs> well, and that it's all been bled out of you, right? Yeah, exactly. And exactly. that by recognizing it, you've eliminated it internally, which of course no one has. Is way more work than you realize. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here's a question. When you're writing, how conscious are you when you start out about theme? And how much is just following an I, something you're thinking about at the time, right? We all approach these, and, and it can be different. Sometimes, I, I know for me, that can happen all different ways. Sometimes there's a world I'm fascinated by or a character or just a, like, like you know, I could write a whole scene in something just because it's uh, two sentences I heard somebody say. So it can happen any different way. And then theme... But sometimes you start, one starts with kind of an idea. So how do you think about that as an artist? Yeah, I think it varies for me a lot. I mean, my general writing is pretty freeform. Um, but like right now, for example, I've got an album that I'm writing for. And I know conceptually what I want to say. Um, I, I think especially in certain seasons, like I try to read about, like with this one, you know, I was reading, I was reading like Washington times articles from the eighties about the Ku Klux Klan. Right. Well, I, I was working on this, you know, I, I was trying to, I was, you know, exactly what I'm saying. I was trying to put as much shit in my palate as I could, that would be applicable to what I wanted to say in the end. And then that stuff just ends up on the, on the canvas. You don't have to try to horn it yep. in. That's because right. it's just there. It's just in the ether, you know? Um, and so I think, I think for me, like, especially right now and why, why I think this album really matters, you know, uh, you know, part of it for me was that I brought in so many people to be on this record that I felt okay to believe in it. You know, it was like, I was helping other people too, not just me. So I didn't feel like a vainglorious bastard. Um, but I think like, there's this, uh, do you know, Karen Pittleman? Are you familiar with her at all? No, no. She's a, a, a credible songwriter from New York city. And she's got a band called Karen and the sorrows. They're very good. Oh. Um, and she, she wrote this incredible essay. I'll, I'll send it to you if you're interested. It's yeah, really, course, really do. good. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, uh, man, I just, it, the essay is about country music, uh, 
the South American culture and about the stories that are told and the stories that aren't told the way that stories that do get told, get told the characters that are allowed in the types of behaviors they're allowed in and the, and the way that that shapes the narrative of the people of a region. Like even now when you have people from, you know, New York or LA or anywhere, you know, outside of the, of, of the rural South, especially who painted as this picture of like, racism and bigotry and trump supporters actually most people in tennessee don't vote the majority of people in tennessee do not vote tennessee is not republican it is under occupied oppression from republican candidates you know that's the situation and i think that i think that it gets lost in translation sometimes that martin luther king jr is from the south He's an icon from the South. You know, there are a lot of queer icons from the South. There are a lot of black icons from the South. There's a lot of movement here and a lot more nuance and people give it credit for. Um, yeah. How do you square that, uh, Adeem? I was thinking about this this morning, like an awareness of the tradition of country music. I love country music, right? I got into it through Guy and Towns, but that led me to Merle Haggard which led me to Waylon and then would led me to like all the things that came from there. Right. Um, but, and, and, and like, I'm a fanatic for Billy Joe Shaver and that story of his, oh, what he did. Right. Right. But, and like, you know, that album honky tonk here is one of the best albums ever made the Waylon album of, of Billy's songs. But how do we square? This is the, the question, right? Which is like, Billy Joe Shaver would have fucking hated me. <laughs> like some fucking New York screenwriter dude who like writes country songs because he finds romance in that, like all that shit. He would have, anyway, hated you. You know, I, I don't know what he would have felt about, or maybe he just wouldn't have understood, or or maybe he wouldn't have. But the, the let's say the perception one has of watching, like I'm sure there are, obviously you can't write the songs he wrote without having a very deep artistic soul that can understand and have empathy for people way different than you. But 99% of the time, everything I know about that dude is, he, yeah, there's some chance he'd have bought us a drink and laugh, but there's a chance he'd have taken a fucking pistol out and told us to leave the bar. And how do you square all that, right? Because that's true. Like, I, uh, I love those records. And yet I'm like, uh, it feels weird sometimes thinking about where it all fits. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, first of all, like, I, got, <laughs> I had this moment recently. <laughs> where I was working on this blues song with this uh, with this artist a couple weeks ago. And it was me and a bunch of black artists in Nashville working on this blues song. And uh, I took the lead and sang the, the, the song, you know, so we could do a demo. And uh, I was do I was doing uh, po poke salad, Annie, you know, what I'm talking about uh, Tony Joe yeah, white. Of course. I was, yeah, of I course. Was, I was using my pocket Tony Joe white voice. Um, but in this room full of black people, it was like that scene from Dewey Cox. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and, uh, and I realized in this moment, like I'm doing Tony Joe White, but Tony Joe White is doing. Of course, what he's on. doing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so I think that's how all of it is. You know, like if, if you if you trace really? the roots back, like Jimmy Rogers learned to play from black men and he started yeah. yodeling so that people would know he was white. Oh, I'm so glad you just mentioned that. Like, I haven't mentioned the documentary in a long time, but. Yeah, that Ken Burns country music documentary that is incredible, that talks about 
Jimmy Rod, that whole heritage of uh, all those um, um, people and um, the women who were there too. It's an it's an amazing documentary, and everybody should everybody should watch it. It's so beautiful. Yeah, uh, we mentioned last season, I think, of Billions, or maybe the one before we mentioned Poke Salad. Uh, and we listened to both Elvis's version and Tony Joe White's version, and uh, both, not Elvis Costello, the other Elvis for people listening uh, who don't know. Um, yeah, but it's great reference from you. I love that. Uh, and that story, yeah, of course, you have in the moment of realization that you're putting on, a, that uh, you're singing about in the voice of a white guy you grew up listening to and realizing as you're doing it, what he was doing, which was uh, copying uh, or doing his version or of uh, traditionally black sound and what that led to with you doing it, right? Right, so, but, but at the end of the day, it's like, that's all country music is. It's, 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 it's sounds that are borrowed from largely from black people. I mean, the, the instrumentation, I mean, the banjo is an African instrument. You know, these, these, are, these are sounds that don't come from from European roots, you know, it's it's obviously a a, a medley, you know. But when yeah, melange, but, yeah. But um, I I guess what I'm saying is, it's not Billy Joe Shaver's music to claim. Yes, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's 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 all appropriated. It's all borrowed, and I think for me, it's it's a vehicle that's been used by a lot of people to do a lot of interesting stuff. I love a lot of Billy Joe Shaver songs. Uh, there's, I don't know if you're a Norm Macdonald fan or not, but um, there's a well, great I, interview. Yeah, I mean, Norm interviews Billy Joe Shaver on Netflix. Oh, I got to go find that. I don't I haven't. I got to really, find that. really, really good. They were good friends. So they're just kind of busting each other's balls the whole time. And it's really, really funny. <laughs> No, I have a, a regret. Of my, Norm and I would communicate sometimes with each other. We would just message, but we never got in a room because there was always this, there's this rumor that Rounders was based on Norm because he played poker in New York. But that's just completely fiction. Like, I didn't know. We were not there at the same. And it was, and Norm knowing it was fake would sometimes go, oh yeah, that was me. It was all based on me. And like, and he knew that it wasn't. And right, right. he loved, he knew it would drive me. It's just like, ah, dude. But yes, he was the funniest. Just the fun. Ah, yeah, no, of course. I was, uh, yeah, playing in the, those guys followed me around. It's like, I never met you. Yeah, they were following me for for years, it seemed like. I never met you. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, oh, my true. God. That makes me so happy. It is. Made me very happy. It always made me um, incredibly uh, happy. I have a question for you, which is when you're in the church and you're part of proselytizing and you're in a family, you know, you're, you're, you're living this kind of life, but inside you, uh, and I'm, this isn't uh, about the, the gender stuff. Um, it's about identity though. And it's the identity of being a writer, an artist, an observer, an outsider. And many of us, you know, I, I know you've listened to the pod a bunch. I'm, you know, I didn't realize really I was a writer till I was so much older. I was in my late twenties, um, till it started welling up in me. And but I, but then when I went to go look back, I was always doing it, um, and uh, I was always watching in a different way, and noticing in a different way, and and processing it in a different way. And um, that's why I felt other, right? Um, but I'm I'm wondering for you, 
how it manifested originally. Meaning, when did you start thinking about, especially group dynamics, because I know, like when I was in those group dynamics and young, I knew that I was seeing things in a, in a way that was just different uh, than the rest of the group very often. And it turned out that meant because I was a writer, I was, I was just, that was my job. I just didn't know it yet. So was that going on for you in some ways too? Yeah, I think, I think that's definitely true. I mean, that's, I tell people this now, um, and I, I think you'll relate to it a lot because, you know, people ask for advice on writing and most of the advice out there is write, just write and write and write, keep writing. And my experience is, is, is the opposite. I think a lot of people probably just need to fucking drink everything they can, you know? And I think there's something, I, I, I don't know why, you know, it could have been, I mean, I remember I was homeschooled for a couple of years and I had a, a really isolated and lonely time during then. I don't know if, if that's part of it, but I did. I picked up a way of, of, of watching movies and TV shows and listening to music and listening and reading poems and reading books and really, really picking up subtle shit. Like, like, you know, what, why, what is it about this line that's standing out to me? Why the fuck did he write this and put this in here? Like that kind of stuff. And I think, I think that's kind of the, some of the biggest work you can do. We, we talked about assembling your palette. Like, when you really get what the work is, you don't have to be sitting in front of a computer. You can, you can do things you enjoy, but it, it matters how you take it in and how yes. you dissect it and how you interpret it and, and how you assign meaning to what's being done. And I think that once you start picking that up, then that's like, until, until that clicks, I don't, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah. You can you can write all day, but if if you haven't figured it out, figured out, <laughs> you know, well, you're you know talking I mean? about what you're I mean, trying in a way, to do. Yeah, palette and another word I like to use is prism. Right, a lot of that is figuring out what's the prism through which you're, what's your point of view? How are you refracting this? Um, and and so yeah, for me, journaling every day is important. But but I understand for other people, letting it letting it marinate for a while so that they can then pour it out. So all different of those ways, I think they're, 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 they're all valuable. It, yeah. You know, I would just roll around in my head. I would watch movies over and over again, not consciously planning anything, but I would just memorize all this dialogue, you know, and I would just spew it. Um, I was fascinated by the way words tumbled around songs too. It just was fascinating to me. Um, and so I had tons of movies just memorized. Um, I still do from, you know, I would saw She's Gotta Have It three times, three nights in a row because I I couldn't believe words could sound like that, you know. Uh, but it was years before I figured out to, to, to write. What, what uh, how has the reaction from the Nashville been to you? I've seen you on a couple of those lists of best country music. Uh, have, have, has the... Traditional, because I know, I've heard a story that like, like I know some country artists will call up Jason or run into Jason or Amanda somewhere and be like, yeah, you know, uh, we're really, even before Cover Me Up was covered, like, we love what you do. You know, we can't play it on the radio, but we love what you do. And um, I'm wondering if you've, if, if you've experienced any of that kind of stuff. No, nobody wants to play me on the radio. 
Yeah. No, uh, no, I mean, I, I I honestly just, I'm not in those rooms. I'm, I'm not, I'm not in a lot of those rooms. Um, I was a member of the Nashville Songwriters Association International and uh, I, I fucking hated it. I hated it. Actually, I'll tell you, um, I, uh, I, I sent them baptized in well spirits from the new record yeah. um, a few years ago and they eviscerated. And no change. It's been through no changes since. Well, then, yeah, by that's the way. great. I love that. There's nothing better than the gatekeepers ripping you for a song. And do you did you ever go through the thing of co-writing in Nashville, doing like a lot of co-writes, or you just knew that wasn't really your thing? I did my first one. I was just telling you over with that blues song with this uh, with this yeah. <laughs> with this Chris contemporary Christian music artist who reached out to me. Um, well, we reached out to each other. I, I really wanted to work with him because he's very good. Um, and then he listened to my record and had the same feeling. And so we were both kind of reaching out to each other and it just clicked. And uh, um, yeah, it, you know, I, I was coming from the place of like, man, it'd be awesome to collaborate with Christian musicians as a trans non-binary queer artist. And he was having the same feeling, like we're not showing love to the communities that we need to be showing love to. And this is a way that's to awesome. open I mean, that's those awesome. doors. Um, but that was the first time I've ever really done it. And it was honestly amazing. I, I I've always been scared because, you know, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say the word palette a third time on the podcast. Fine. No, go um, on ahead. But you, you I'm, I'm actually going to skip it, but I did. Our, I already said it now. Uh, you know, you get a little rule book for yourself. I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, what I'm talking about, you know, there are like things that like, I think are hack that yeah, may or may not be hack. They just, to me feel like I'm not going to do this. Like, Hard rhymes is one of those things that people care about a lot about that. I, I just fucking hate hard rhymes. Um, but the, you know, I, I've been so scared of, you know, the, not just the vulnerability of it, but also just the like discomfort of walking into a room. Like you, you sent me a song, you sent me a song that I really love. Yeah. I wrote with Steven Wilson called, uh, when I get mad. Yeah. And I changed the, I changed the lyric in that song when I covered it. <laughs> You know, there was like one line that I was like, oh, "Good." This is just like, there's just a little, there's just a little change. I feel like I want. Oh, uh, did you yeah. sing it? You sang it out one night. That's awesome. I sang it. Yeah, I sang it. <laughs> at a club in town. Um, Good. Sing it anytime you want, man. That guy's great, Stephen. Yeah. But I. Um, Why one line was too hard to rhyme? We had a line in there that was too hard to rhyme. It was just there was just like a smoother way to say something, and I, I was like, it. "I'm That's gonna, I'm going to take it." And, and, and I was, I was so, I feel so nervous about being in a room with somebody and saying like, I'm sorry, I would just never say something this way. I want to change it to this because this feels right to me. I can't explain to you why exactly, but this people is right. Are, <laughs> no. can, I, can I tell you something though? Uh, people are so open in those rooms when you find the right people to exactly that. They love that. Like yeah. when I, I have, you know, I do a lot of it obviously. And, and, um, uh, over the last bunch of years and like I have found, and it's the more secure, the more success, the more accomplished the other, the writer is, the more open they are to you going, man, I just would do it differently. Uh, or can we try it another way? Or, Hey, I got an idea. And they're, Everybody is now. Sometimes, of course, you're. You know, I've told the story here before, where I went to a a, a, a write with an established country, uh, old old time dude who literally took the guitar off his lap and said to me, "Before we start, we just need to talk about the Jew thing," and um, 
it was amazing. Um, and and he was to actually turned out to just be curious about a bunch of you know. Uh, uh, he, 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 he said, you know, I just want to know what it's like. You're a couple clicks down the road closer to him because you were chosen originally. And it was amazing, like just the way he was piecing it together. And then after we're supposed to, you know, get the guitars back on our laps and write a song. To get, it was a long time ago. But, but even that you find once you start getting down to like two people who are creative there for the right reasons, I don't know. It's kind of a magical thing. Um, What's I just want to just to wrap it up here because I'm going to go down to set. Um, what are you telling yourself about how you want to think about? Oh, you said you're already writing, but like riding this wave and then and then figuring out how to do the next thing. Like, are you feeling okay? Yeah, I. You know, I creatively there are a lot of spaces that I'm interested in breaking into that are not exactly where I'm at right now. Um, but I'll reference that Karen Pittleman article again. I, I, that really lit a fire under me and, and kind of helped me to find what I would call the work aspect of this. Um, and, and, and that I do feel like I've got a pretty, pretty clear vision of what I want. To say. I don't, I don't know, <laughs> you know, but I've got at least one or two more that I, I you know, Good. of stuff. Please that I keep. Know I mean, I'm important. interested in whatever, whatever you make. But, but, but you, you found a pocket here that's really awesome. You know, it's. I mean, you know, I listen to a lot of. I will say the next record will probably be a little more bluesy, blues infused country is stuff that I'm really into. I'm, I'm from, I'm from the Lower Piedmont in North Carolina, so I, I listen to a lot of Piedmont blues artists, and that's becoming kind of a, a, a really informing um awesome way, way of playing and writing um but uh yeah I, I you know i i think there are people in the country music industry who are just trying to make a buck and that's it and that's fine and i think there are other people who are just trying to make a buck uh too who are who are doing it in kind of nefarious ways with this sort of culture war, you know what I mean? They're, they're writing these songs about like how country music's supposed to be like this and real Southern men act like this. And I, I don't want to be the flip side of that coin. I don't want to say, well, Southerners are this, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to be in a culture war. I'm, I don't have any interest in that. What I am interested in is culture shaping. And that's why the record that I made has characters who disagree with each other on it, because that's the reality of, of the South. So to me, I think I don't want to do anything that is exclusionary. I don't, I, you know, I, it was really important to me. Cast Iron Pansexual was a record that I made about my sexuality and my gender. I made it for my community, for people who would relate to that. I did not think about it being seen through the, through the gaze of cisgendered <laughs> straight people. I just didn't, I didn't consider it. Um, and this record is very much like a love letter to, to, to everybody. You know what I mean? It, it, this was, a uh, yes, this is, this is what I'd like to keep doing. You know, I, I do have bite and I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I pull punches. Uh, but at the same time, I think my punches are pretty fucking measured. Um, 
And I want, you know, I'm signed to the same distributor as Toby Keith. I would love to have a dialogue with Toby Keith. I'm totally open to it. Um, you know, I, when I found out that he had cancer, I lit a candle for him and his family. My songs about Toby Keith are about Toby Keith, the publicly owned entity, not Toby Keith, the man, you know, in the same way that a deemed the artist is becoming a publicly owned entity that exists outside of me. No, I thought that was all fair. Um, I there are there are eight or nine Toby Keith songs that I truly love. They're not the jingoistic ones. They're not the jingoistic ones that you're talking about. There are Toby Keith songs because, and I respect. I'll just say, he writes his own songs usually by himself, and he is he's great at it. And it's an amazing thing. I, our politics are so different, but that that dude is so. And I I loved your song. I loved what you said. Uh, it's I I it changes nothing about the fact that I that's an incredibly talented artist who just sees the world through a different prism and the, I would love the two of you to have a coffee together uh, and I, I just want to say this about your record for people who are out there who might not know it for all of this talk you can put this album on and just have a fucking great time listening to it I I gotta say it is yes it is absolutely. A call to change, but it is a loving call to change. Beyond that, though, it is just uh, like I'm sure there are people who really, really know what uh, When Doves Cry is about. I am not one of those people. And I have listened to When Doves Cry, I don't know, 300,000 times. Phenomenal song. And, um, like I know that Prince definitely had it, definitely knew what he was trying to say. It just hasn't exactly hit me, but it doesn't stop me from wanting to listen to it over and over and 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 recognizing how great it is. And um, I would say that uh, if you're hearing this conversation, don't think we're giving you a homework assignment when we're saying you should listen to White Trash Revelry. You're gonna have uh, a down home sing along, and you might come away with a little more wisdom than you had before. Um, I mean, the only negative review the album has gotten so far was from Saving Country Music. Um, and he gave it like a seven and a half out of ten. That's <laughs> he not begrudgingly negative. Loved, he begrudgingly loved my record. I'm surprised he I'm surprised he didn't like it, actually, because no, he did. He did. He just used it as an example. You know, he just shoehorned a lot of bigotry in there. All right, I'm gonna go. I'm sadly gonna read it. Everybody, go buy, uh, go stream or buy White Trash Revelry. Go see Adim the Artist um, on tour. Also, uh, Adim, uh, I'm so glad to hear you sang that song a couple times, man. That's awesome. All right, take care, everybody. Uh, you can find Adim all over social media. TikTok's great. Instagram's great. You can find me on Instagram or TikTok. I don't go on that Twitter anymore. You can email me at themomentbk at gmail.com. Thank you, everybody. 